Uh, as I mentioned, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. And I've been in this role for about 16 months now. It's been a great 16 months. God has been so faithful to us, and he's doing such a cool work in our midst, and it's such a privilege to be a part of it. Before I was serving as the lead pastor here, though, I, I worked as a director of youth and college ministries for the Assemblies of God in the state of New York. And so my primary responsibilities was serving a network of about 325 churches, and I was uh, training leaders, developing leaders, mentoring, coaching, resourcing leaders, and a lot of Sunday mornings I would be at other churches preaching and teaching. And anytime that I could get to the church that I was preaching at within a couple hours, I would wait until Sunday morning to go instead of going Saturday and staying at a hotel just so I could have one less night away from my girls. And so some mornings I would get up very early on Sunday to drive to churches in Buffalo or Rochester, Albany, Binghamton, wherever. And, uh, you know, when you get up first in your home and you're getting ready, you're trying to be quiet, right? You're trying to keep the noise level down because you don't want to wake up and anger your family members. And so many mornings I would be dressing in the dark and just kind of like trying to be as quiet as I can so I wouldn't wake up Aaron and I wouldn't wake up the girls. And one morning I was getting ready and, and uh, I had taken a shower and I had gotten dressed and I put my contacts in and I was ready to go. And the last thing I want to do was put a little cologne on. You know, I'm a, I want to smell kind of nice when I meet people. And so um, I had bought this, my favorite cologne, John Varvatos. I had bought this cologne on Amazon. And when I got it, I found something interesting about this cologne bottle. Most cologne bottles, when you push the top uh, button, it's like a gentle mist, Right? There's a little gentle mist that you can kind of like spray in front of you and walk into or spray on your neck or your, or your wrist or wherever you want to spray your cologne. Well, this bottle, for whatever reason, the tip of this bottle, it shot out the cologne like a laser beam. It was just like, like really intense, really strong, and no chill at all. And so I'm, uh, I'm in the dark. I'm ready to go. The last thing I want to do is put some cologne on, and I take my cologne bottle in the dark, and I go to spray it on my wrist. And what I don't realize has happened is that the tip of the cologne bottle has twisted. And so the spout is facing my face, and it shoots a laser beam of cologne directly into my wide-open right eye. And I don't know if you've ever had the displeasure of shooting some cologne or perfume into your eye, but it burns. This is mostly alcohol, so it burns. And immediately my eye clamped down, because it's the defense mechanism, right? So the eye clamps down, it starts watering. And now keep in mind, I'm trying to be quiet. I'm trying not to scream. I'm trying not to kick things and yell at things. And so as quietly and correctly as I can, I like run into the bathroom, and I know I have enough common sense to know i got to get water into my eyes. So with my right hand, I'm trying to pry my eye open, and I'm trying to wash it under the sink. And with my left hand, I'm Googling, what do you do when you spray cologne in your eye? <laughs> And out of my good eye, I look over and I, and I was actually comforted because you know how Google does autofill? The, actually, enough people apparently have sprayed cologne in their eyes that it autofilled my question for me. So I was like, okay, I'm not the only idiot in the world. And so and, and I, as I read the first article that I clicked on, it, it said, wash your eye out. It'll be red. It'll be sore, but you'll be fine. You're not going to lose your eye. You're not going to go blind. And I was really comforted by that, by, by that Google search. The amount of knowledge that we have at our fingertips is amazing unprecedented, incredible. What previous generations could only dream about having access to in the entirety of the world, we now have in our pockets. We carry it around with us. And there's so much knowledge at our fingertips. I was reading an article from Forbes magazine by a guy named Bernard Marr. He wrote this almost a year ago. So some of this data obviously is already outdated. But listen to what he says. He says, the amount of data that we produce every day is truly mind-boggling. There are 2.5 quintillion bytes of data created each day at our current pace. But the pace is only accelerating as the internet grows. Over the last two years alone, 90% of the data in the world that exists was generated. 
I mean, that's how much data we are producing. We conduct now way over half of our Google searches on our phones. More than 3.7 billion humans use the internet. And on average, Google processes more than 40,000 searches every single second. That's 3.5 billion searches per day, 5 billion a day if you include other search engines. And the research goes on to say that half of the searches are for funny videos about kittens. I don't know, but that's just what it says. But in this world that we live in, we have all this knowledge at our fingertips. What I'm convinced of is this. We're more knowledgeable. We really are than previous generations. We know more things. We, we have access to more information. But the question before us is this. Are we wiser? Have we grown in wisdom? Well, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Someone said it this way. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing to not put it in a fruit salad. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. The wisdom isn't simply intelligence or knowledge. You can't Google search wisdom. Wisdom isn't simply intelligence or knowledge or even understanding. Wisdom is the ability to rightly apply knowledge and intelligence in such a way that common sense prevails and that choices are beneficial and productive. So in a world where knowledge is a click away, wisdom isn't. What we're going to do as a church here is we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about wisdom. We're going to be in the book of Proverbs, mostly in Proverbs chapter 3. And Proverbs is known as the wisdom book of the Bible. It has more to say about wisdom than any other book in the Bible. And this morning, our big idea is simply this, that wisdom, true wisdom, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, starts with trusting. Wisdom starts, SV translation, and it says this, beginning in verse 1, my son... Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Now let me pause real quick and say this about verse two. Length of days and years of life and peace that they will add to you. The, the writer of Proverbs here, he's not promising prosperity. He's not even necessarily promising longevity. What he's not promising is lots of years, but he's promising that the years of your life will be full that when you do have life, your life will have meaning and purpose, it will be full, and while you may not prosper in the way that the world wants you to prosper, your soul will prosper, and you'll have peace, or, or the term that, that the Old Testament uses more is shalom, which is a sense of wholeness and a sense of who you are. That's what, that's what the pro, proverb is saying here. Verse three, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And then this is our key verse this morning, maybe the most well-known verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, not with some of your heart, not with part of your heart, not your heart on Sundays, but your heart all the time, all of your heart all the time. Trust in the Lord and what's, the, what's sort of the opposite of trusting in the Lord? Leaning on our own understanding, depending on our own quote-unquote wisdom and knowledge. Trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. It's my belief that everyone trusts in something. Everybody places their hope in something. Everybody builds their life on something. So what do you trust in? And here's the thought that's been haunting me this week, that somebody can believe in God but still trust in something else for their real significance, for their real happiness, for their real meaning and purpose. And whatever that thing is, no matter what you say about your belief in God, whatever it is that you really trust in, that you functionally trust in with your life and with your heart, that thing actually is your real God. And so this morning, I want us to take time together to ask the question, who and what do we really 
trust in? No matter what we say, no matter what the songs were that we just sang, who or what do we really trust in? And this morning what we're gonna do is we're gonna use three questions from this text to try and diagnose our source of trust. And the first question is this. What does your mind pay attention to? What does your mind pay attention to? In verse one, it starts this way. Son, do not forget my teaching. Another way that we can interpret that when you study it in the Hebrew is this. Son, pay attention to what I've told you. Parents, that sounds familiar, right? Pay attention. How many of you have ever had someone say to you, look me in the eyes while I'm talking to you? Look me in the eye. You know, it's mostly children and husbands, but look me in the eye. Look me in the eye when I'm talking to you because I know you're not, if you're not looking at me, you're not hearing me. And that's kind of what is happening here. The, 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 the author of Proverbs chapter three is saying, my son, look me in the eye and pay attention to me and pay attention to my teachings and pay attention to my commandments and even the rules that I've put out for your life. Now, let's be honest, when people hear the words like commandments and rules, they tend to think things like this. Oh, well, that's, see, that's the problem with Christianity. That's why I don't want anything to do with it. Rules and commandments and people trying to tell you what to do. But consider this possibility. I think that every single person actually has a set of rules by which they live their lives. Every single person has a code, a standard, a sense of what is right and wrong. So the question before you this morning is not, do you have rules? It's not, are you living your life by certain rules, or do you have commandments that guide your life? The question is not, do you have rules, but the question is this, where did you get your rules from? Where did you get your standard from? Where did you get your code of life from? Where did you get these things from? Did you get it from culture? Are you getting it from the media? Are you getting it from your friends, from other people, from your family? Are you getting it from yourself? And in Proverbs chapter three, when they talk about these rules and these commandments and these teachings, one of the things that we have to understand is that they come from a place of loving relationship. Did you notice the first two words in Proverbs chapter three? It says, my son, not, not hey, stranger, or even my student, or my friend, but my son. It's a place of deep care and relationship. And those of you that, parents, uh, that are parents or have young children in your life, maybe you're an uncle or your aunt, you understand that your care for them tends at times for you to give them some rules, doesn't it? Some commands, some instructions. You know, when someone says to a child, hey, don't touch the stove, it's hot, nobody in their right mind goes, ah, see, now there's the problem, rules. That's the problem. If they really love that child, they wouldn't give them any rules. It's actually their love that causes them to give that instruction. Or when we say, hey, stay out of the road, don't go play in the road. If the ball goes in the road, don't go chase it. Look both ways before you cross the road. You know, no one says, oh, rules, man, you're ruining these kids' lives. It's so fun out in the road. That's where all the fun is. Let them go play out in the road all they want. No, because we realize, like, those instructions, not only are they wise, but they come from a place of love. When I tell my daughters, it's bedtime, you can't stay up all night, or you gotta turn your electronics off after 10 hours of using them, or you gotta eat vegetables and not just chocolate and candy, it's not because I hate them, because I dislike them, because I don't want them to be well and I don't want them to prosper. It's the exact opposite. It's because I want them to have all of those things. And so from a position of a father who loves and cares for them and has the perspective of some experience, I speak to them that way. Now, how much more care and experience does our heavenly father have? How much does he care for us? What great perspective he has to speak into our lives and give us commandments and rules. And the father is saying here to his son, hey, hey, pay attention. Pay close attention. Because you're going to pay attention to something our minds, we can't just shut them off. Our minds are always paying attention to something. But he's saying, only my teaching, only my commandments, only living life the way God intended us to live it will lead us into shalom, wholeness, and peace. 
And one of the questions that we have to consider is that in, in all the noise of our culture, is our world noisy or what? Is it noisy? I mean, how do you get away from it? Everywhere you go, you're bombarded by commercials and songs and movies and media and different voices. In all the voices of our culture, what are you listening to? And what are you saying to yourself? Because what your mind pays attention to has the power to shape you and shape what you believe to be true. And you know, your internal dialogue is much stronger than anything I can say to you this morning. In fact, you can be sitting here and staring at me, and as far as I can tell, you're listening to me, but you could be miles away in your mind, and I wouldn't know. You can have this internal dialogue going on a lot faster. Like, I wonder which dinner party I'm going to sign up for. I wonder what's for lunch. I wonder this, that, and the other. I wonder if spring's ever actually going to show its face, right? So you might be wondering all these things, and you can think much faster than I can speak, and you actually have more power to influence yourself than I have to influence you, because we always believe ourselves. I mean, we always do. We're always convinced that we know what's best. And the proverb is challenging that, saying don't lean on your understanding. You don't always know best. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher, said this one time. He said, most of our unhappiness, think for a moment about your moments of unhappiness. Most of our unhappiness is a result of the truth that we are listening to ourselves more than we're talking to ourselves. Most of our unhappiness is because we're listening to ourselves more than we're talking to ourselves. And here's what he's saying. You're not taking any control over what you're paying attention to. You're just letting every other voice shape your thinking, shape your mind. What are you paying attention to? And ask yourself this. What are you paying attention to? What things do you rehearse in your mind over and over? What thoughts do you have? What fears do you tell yourself over and over and over? What things are you always rehearsing in your mind? And then ask yourself this question. Are those words leading me into peace? Are they leading me into truth? Are they leading me into rest? Are they leading me into joy? Or am I always talking myself into a frenzy, convincing myself things are maybe worse than they are, always living in the light or in the darkness of the worst possible scenario? I understand that some of us are wired that way, and there's some wisdom in thinking through the possibilities that could happen. But we have to pay close attention to what is our mind rehearsing and thinking about the most. And as you trust in God, here's what you begin to do. You begin to trust, you begin to pay more attention to his word than your words. You begin to pay more attention to his truth than what circumstances say. You begin to pay more attention to his commandments than the rules that you tried to govern your own life by. And it leads you into wisdom as you remember, as you remind yourself, and as you rehearse the truth of God's word. Now, how do we do this? Can I give you a few practical thoughts and then we'll go to the next question? First thing is this, you have to establish some spiritual disciplines in your life, right? That we, we, read, we need to be in scripture every day. Why? To prove God that we're faithful? To prove God that we love, we love him? To earn his love? No. Why do we need to be in scripture every day? Because we need his truth washing over us. It's the truth of his word that sanctifies us and grows us. And you and I cannot grow apart from daily, regular rhythms of being in his word and submerging and immersing our hearts in the truth of God's word. So that's one thing that we should be doing. If you're not doing it, make a habit of it. Take a next step and start reading. Maybe read through the Proverbs while we're in this series on the Proverbs. Here's another practical idea. Write out for yourself some visual reminders and post them in places where you'll see them throughout the day. So take a promise from Scripture that you want to remember, write it out on a three-by-five note card, and put it up on your mirror where you get ready every morning. Or for me, put it on the fridge, right, because that's where I'm going every day multiple times. Or, or put it where you work out, or put it in your car, but put it somewhere where you're going to see it, and it's going to be before you. This is what it means to keep God's Word and His commandments before you. Another practical thought is pay attention to the media, the content of the media, 
that's filling your mind when you start your day especially. I drive my two oldest girls to school most mornings, and on the way, we listen to music, and I like to have them listening to worship music in the morning because I want those truths to be really settling into their hearts and shaping their minds even as they go into the day and they go into a place where they're not always experiencing those truths. So even in the morning, pay attention especially to the content of the meeting. When you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is feed your mind with some sort of content that's not God's truth and God's word. It has the power to affect you really for the rest of the day. And here's one other thing that you could do. Choose some people in your life and invite them to remind you. Say, would you remind me every now and then of a something God has said, would you text me once a week a scripture verse and just invite them into your life to remind you? Every night we put our girls to bed, 10 years old, 8-year-old, 5-year-old. I guess that'll end at some point, but right now they still let me put them to bed. We put them to bed and, and we pray with them. I'll pray with them, then Aaron will come in usually, and then I'll, I have a little song that I sing with them, and we have this whole routine. And I always start with our five-year-old Maddie, and, uh, and, and with Maddie, she's always, Matt, the other girls want me to stand by her be, their bed, but Maddie wants me to actually lie in the bed with her, so I lie in the bed. And I, if I try to do it without lying in the bed, she doesn't have it. She won't have it. She's, daddy, daddy, daddy. And so I lie down in the bed, and, I, and she grabs my face, and she gets really aggressive, and then, and then I pray with her, and then I sing with her. And as I get up to go, she gives me the same reminder every single night without fail, every night she never forget she says this daddy don't forget the girls don't forget the girls now I don't I don't need that reminder but I love that reminder right you may be thinking I don't need reminders every day I think I got this down you need to learn to love the reminders you need to shift from saying I need God's reminders I need his word to I delight in his word I love his reminders. And the more people that are willing to remind me and the more places I can get it, whether it's listening to scripture as you drive to work, whether it's subscribing to something that sends a scripture to your phone, there's so many resources available to you right now to keep God's word before you so that your mind's paying attention to the right things. All right, second question this morning is this. What does your heart hold on to? It said, let your heart keep my commandments. And that word, keep my commandments, it's much more than obey. It doesn't just mean obey. Actually, in the Hebrew, it means guard. Vigilantly guard. Vigilantly guard and maintain these commandments. Uh, Hold on to these things. Get a grip on these things and let your heart hold on to who God is. Because your heart is holding on to something. Your heart is your security system. The question is, what is your heart guarding? What is your heart holding on to? And every single day, there are thieves trying to rob your heart of full life, meaningful life, the peace and the shalom that's promised here in Proverbs 3. And you know what those thieves are? In other places, the Bible calls them idols. And our hearts are always producing idols, things that we trust in, in place of God. Martin Luther was famously said, the human heart is an idol factory, cranking out idols day after day. Well, how do you know what your idol is? How do you know what you're trusting in? How do you know what your heart is actually holding on to? Well, ask yourself this question. What life scenario will make me say, I have finally arrived? What life scenario will make me say, I have finally arrived? What is that moment gonna be like? Because that's the thing that you're really placing your hope in. That's the thing that you're really placing your trust in. That's the thing that you're really tapping into for purpose and meaning and just the energy and the strength to get through another day because it's, we talked about it last week on Easter Sunday, it's your vision of the good life. It's what's before you. It's what drives you and compels you. 
Whatever that scenario is when you think of it, if Jesus Christ is not the life-giving center of it, then your heart is being penetrated by a life-robbing idol and you're holding on to the wrong things. And however you define peace and shalom and meaning and purpose for your life, if it's not found in Christ, then it's found in an idol. And here's what idols do. They demand your all, but they give you nothing. They take everything from you, break its promise, nothing in return. And if you obey your idol, if you worship it, if you give everything for it, it will break its promises to you. It will never be enough. Last night, Aaron and I were watching um, uh, Restaurant Impossible on the Food Network, surprise, surprise, and uh, with, uh, with a chef named Robert Irvine. And he went to a restaurant in California, and he always comes in and he always critiques the restaurant, of course, that's his job. But in this case, the actual facilities was fine. It was clean, the restaurant looked nice. The problem was the food. But the chef didn't want to hear that. When he began to critique her food, she just flew off the handle, yelling, screaming, cussing, bleep her out like all, all over and over and over. And she basically said, you don't go on national television and tell people that my food's not. And she just snapped. And later in the show, he talked to her and he's like, well, where did that anger come from? Where did that come out of? And she said that, she, she finally owned up and said, I had a stepmother growing up who told me my whole life I would be nothing. I would never accomplish anything. I would be a nobody. And her entire life has been a trajectory of proving to that woman that she was wrong. And so when she opened this restaurant up, it was incredibly successful. They were doing amazing. They were very prosperous. But it wasn't enough. She still felt like she had to do more to still prove to her stepmom. And so she tried to open up a second restaurant. And that's when it all fell apart because she's not a good enough leader to run two different restaurants. And that's when they started losing money. And as they talked, she, she realized my whole life has been me trying to silence a woman who really isn't even in my life anymore, but still has more power over me than anyone who actually is in my life. Now, I don't know if you have that sort of story, but we all have those sort of things pulling at our hearts, things that drive us and compel us. And as long as we're looking for the good life, as long as we think our arrival moment is somewhere outside of Christ, we're gonna be enslaved to going after that thing, and we're gonna give everything for it, but it will break its promises to you. Because as soon as you get it, you realize it didn't actually deliver what you thought it would. As soon as she had a successful restaurant, she should have thought, she should have experienced all that peace and joy. She should have experienced that pride. She should have said, I did it, and now nobody can tell me I'm a nobody because I opened a successful restaurant. But she couldn't tell herself that. She had to go open another one because that's the way these things work. Only Christ can actually satisfy our hearts in that way. And if you fail to obey it or if you fail to achieve it, it will punish you. Or actually, more truthfully, you will punish yourself. And it will lead you into a lifetime of foolishness. And you know why? Because in order to get it, you'll do anything, including making all sorts of foolish decisions that you know aren't really right, but you're chasing after this thing that your heart holds on to. So what should we hold on to instead? And what we should hold on to, steadfast love, the very thing that actually holds on to us. It said it right here in verse three. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Those adjectives or those, those words, those nouns, steadfast love and faithfulness, those are descriptors. And they're not describing you and me. They're, descri they're describing God himself. Exodus 34, 6, that's how God is described, as stead, one who is steadfast, love, and faithful. This is covenantal language. This is reminding the Jewish people, this is the God who chose you, so hold on to the goodness of God. And I, I love how in this, in this proverb, it says, write it on the tablet of your heart and bind it around your neck. Did you notice that? Wear it around your neck. Well, what does that mean? What it means is that when you really trust in God and when your heart really holds on to God, it will be both a private public thing, but it also, or sorry, it'll be both a private personal thing, but it also eventually will be a public thing. 
Write it on the tablet of your heart. There's nothing more private or personal than what's written on your heart. Nobody else can see it. But it's got to start there because everything flows out of our hearts. But also, the, pro- the author of Proverbs chapter 3 here says, not just that, but wear it around your neck. Now, what does that mean? In the ancient Near Eastern world where this was written, there were other religions where they would wear things around their necks in a superstitious sort of way. They wear amulets and, and, and stones and gems around their necks because they thought it gave them power or access to divine power. They would do these sort of things. And of course, the scriptures reject that sort of hope, but here's what the scriptures are saying. As you wear this around your, your, your neck, it should be a sign to those who know you and see you that you're different from people who are the superstitious people. There's something actually about you that reflects God's steadfastness and his character and his love, and it will be publicly known because you'll wear it with boldness so other people can see it. And so when your heart is holding on to Jesus, yes, it will change you on the inside first, but eventually it needs to work its way out in your life so that people who are around you can see it almost like they can see a necklace that's hanging from your neck because it should be that bold and that obvious that you're holding on to, staking everything on God. And what are we staking everything on? We're staking everything on God being steadfastly loving and faithful to us forever through Jesus Christ. Why? Simply because he promised to. Because he's good and he promised he would be that way. And this is what our hearts must hold on to if we're going to be wise. If you think you can have wisdom apart from your heart holding on to the promises of God, you're not understanding what the scriptures teach us here. And the Bible, let me give you one more thought before we get to our last point. The Bible defines wisdom in a way that goes beyond natural wisdom. So earlier I said wisdom is not just knowledge. It's knowledge rightly applied in the right situation. But actually, King Solomon, who is the wisest man uh, ever, son of King David, he says in Proverbs uh, chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's interesting. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what does that mean? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, I'll start by telling you what it's not. The fear of the Lord is not like the fear of the dark or the fear of water or the fear of heights or the fear of being struck dead. It's not a crippling, consuming fear. The fear of the Lord is something very, very different. The fear of the Lord is a deep, abiding, remaining, holy reverence and respect for the Lord. It's it's a worshipful awe for who God is. We all have different fears, and not to call my wife out, but one of her great fears is spiders. Anybody else want to sympathize with Aaron, empathize with Aaron, spiders, right? Every now and then, uh, every now and then I'll, I'll see a story in the news about somebody who was driving down the road and they saw a spider in their car, and they so panicked that they would drive off the road and crash their car, and then come to find out they crashed the car because they were trying to kill this spider. And every time the headline pops up on my phone, I check it to make sure it's not Aaron, like just, 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 to, be, just to be sure. Aaron's got a thing with spiders, and here's what, here, I've learned a few things about people who are afraid of spiders. People who are afraid of spiders, spiders, every new room they walk into, they do the same thing. They look to the corners of the room, because they know if there's going to be, if there's going to be spiders, they're going to be up there in a corner somewhere. So, so people who are really afraid of spiders, they walk in a room, and they kind of look at the four corners to make sure there's no spiders, and then God forbid they see a spider. Here's what happens. Every step they take, every decision, every choice is done with reference to where that spider is, right? And as soon as that spider disappears, so do they. <laughs> when they don't know where the spider is anymore, they're not gonna stay in the room. And when the, when the writer here, when King Solomon says that the, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this is the sort of fear he's talking about. The fear of the Lord is the sort of fear that says, I won't make a single decision, I won't take a single step, I won't do a single thing without reference to who God is, what he says about this. 
what he thinks about this. I won't do a single thing without considering. The fear of the Lord is a fear that causes someone to do everything in reference to that object of deep respect and worshipful awe, and worshipful awe, and that's the beginning of wisdom, okay? So, what does your mind pay attention to? What does your heart hold on to? And then lastly this morning, as we're trying to diagnose what we trust, because wisdom begins and starts with trusting, what does your life lean on? What does your life lean on? Probably the most famous verse in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Our confidence is not in some sort of ethic or creed or standard. Our confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the kind of trust that he deserves and the kind of trust that he demands is wholehearted trust. And that phrase, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, I just wanna put it out there. I think this command is one of the hardest things for us to do, to trust in the Lord. Yeah, yeah, we trust in the Lord, but with all your heart, all the time? What does it look like? It's to move beyond just mental assent or intellectual assent to a deep reliance on the Lord, a settled confidence in his care and his faithfulness to his word. And don't lean on your own understanding. There's nothing harder than telling somebody, don't depend on what you think is true. Don't lean on your understanding because we all think we know best. Nobody wants to be told that what they've built their life on and what they think is true is not true. Instead, we'll say things like this. No, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. Right? You've been in the car with somebody who you know they're going the wrong way. You're trying to tell them. They're like, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going, right? We don't want to be told that we're going the wrong way, that we're doing the right things. But at the heart of wisdom is this willingness to say, I don't always know. I don't always have the answers. I can't always lean on my own understanding, so I have to trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord instead of depending on my own understanding. By the way, this also implies, listen to this, that sometimes trusting in God will actually go against what makes sense to you. Have any of you experienced this in your life? Trusting in God goes against your own understanding and what makes sense to you. Sometimes I've heard Christians say things like this. Well, I'm not going to do that because I don't have peace about it. I don't have peace about it. I understand what they're saying. They're asking God for peace and they don't sense peace. But actually, sometimes if I'm honest, I think about it's not to obey God. It's an excuse not to trust. I don't have peace about it. Think about some of these people in the Bible and the things God asked them to do, and then ask, our, ask yourself this. Do you think they had peace when they were doing these things? When God told Noah to build an ark in a world that had never seen rain? You think Noah thought, that makes sense. Yeah, that really lines up with what I've been feeling. I'm gonna go ahead and do that. No, how about when God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Do you think Abraham had peace and felt really great about that? When Esther was instructed by, her, by, Mor- uh, by Mordecai to put her, her very life on the line and to speak up for the Jewish people. Did she have peace? When Daniel prayed in front of that open window, even though the king had passed a law that if you pray to any other God, you're gonna get thrown into this den of hungry lions. Do you think he had peace? Trusting in God with all your heart means you're gonna have to reject your own understanding sometimes. The apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 7 said this, that the peace of God surpasses understanding. What does that mean? You're not always gonna get it here. You're just not always gonna get it here. His peace goes beyond what makes sense, and we need peace that surpasses understanding. Sometimes trusting in God with all your heart means rejecting your own understanding. And let me ask you this question. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you actually went against your own understanding because you were learning to trust in God? God wants to bring us in that sort of place of trust where we're not overly reliant upon our own understanding. The Hebrew word trust here, by the way, means to throw yourself down on your face. Just to, to do a spread eagle, just complete, one commentary says it, this, says it this way, it's to do a belly flop on God. 
just to do a belly flop on God with all of our sin and all of our failures and all of our fears and to stake everything on the gospel promises of God and to say, God, whatever you're doing, I trust you. And I just throw my life on you. I throw myself on you. You take me as I am and I trust in you. Whatever you do. I'm reminded of the three Hebrew boys in the Old Testament who were told to bow to an idol by an evil king. And they wouldn't bow. And so they were about to be thrown into a furnace. And the king said, I'll give you one more chance to bow or else you're going into this furnace. And they said, listen, king, our God is able to deliver us. That's trust, right? But here's real trust. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow a knee. That's what trust looks like. Not just, hey, God's got me and this is gonna work out perfect. But what if it doesn't? Even if it doesn't, I still will not bow my knee to other idols. I will trust in God and I'll trust in who he is. In closing, let me point out one more thing about this type of trust. It talks about leaning. When you lean on something, your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is in the thing that you're leaning on, right? If you're on somebody's deck and you're leaning against the fence, it doesn't matter how confident you are. If that fence isn't strong enough to hold you up, what's gonna happen? You're gonna, you're gonna be on America's Funniest Videos next week, aren't you? You're gonna, you're gonna go right off the edge. It doesn't matter how much confidence you are. It doesn't matter how much you trust that fence. If the, if the object of your trust isn't strong, it isn't going to hold you up. Well, what does this mean? For Christians, here's what it means. We are not saved, saved, and you're not of our trust, but by the object of our trust. Did you hear that? You're not saved and you're not secured by the strength of your faith or the strength of your trust, but by the object of your trust. And some of you need to hear that this morning because some of you get up every morning and you feel like, I don't have a lot of faith. I don't have a lot of trust. I wish I trusted more. I wish, I wish I was like this person. I wish I had the gift of faith. I wish I could do this and do that. And here's what you need to hear this morning. It's not the strength of your trust that secures you. It's who are you trusting in? What are you leaning on? Because you could be a really confident person, but if you're leaning on your own understanding, you're gonna fall. And you could be the weakest, weakest Christian in the room, but if you're trusting on God, you're gonna stand because we're saved by the strength of our trust, not the object of our trust. Wisdom knows it's about trusting, not trying. And that's why the author said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Let's pray together this morning.